This morning, we're going to take a look at the last part of the Lord's Prayer. Lars is going to be preaching next week, which I'm excited about. He's going to compare the Lord's Prayer to Psalm 23, which I'm really excited for you to join in and and think about. It's a really powerful reflection that Lars has for us. We're going to look this morning at the last part of the Lord's Prayer, which I think is a really important thing for us to consider, especially during these times. What does it look like for prayer to quote-unquote work. One of the blessings that I've experienced during these last few weeks, and I hope you've been joining in with us and praying at 8 a.m. and at noon and at 6 p.m. as we've been saying the Lord's Prayer together. If you haven't been doing that yet, please start. Join us at any time. We'd love to have you join in uh, the prayer times with us. But one of the things that's been a blessing for me during this time is that we are praying more as a family. We were already praying together, but during these times, my alarm goes off and whatever we're doing, we pause as a family and pray. And at the 6 p.m. alarm a few days ago, we said the Lord's Prayer together. We were eating dinner, and after the Lord's Prayer was over, Carter looked at me and said, who's six years old, do I get a treat for that? And unfortunately, he didn't get a treat. He'd had some treats already. We have local grandmas and grandpas, so he didn't get a treat for doing that. But I was thinking about how that is so often how we can view prayer. God, how often do I have to pray before I get my treat? I've been praying about this person or this situation for this many days or this many weeks, or how long do I have to pray for you to do exactly what I would want you to do? People have often approached God, understanding it as some sort of magic thing that we are a part of, and we're trying to perhaps get God on our side. In fact, the word hocus pocus, which is used in the magic uh, community, is actually from the Latin word hacus corpus, which means this is the body. And so in the 1600s, when people would hear this is the body, as they were taking communion in church, they started to interpret it as hocus pocus. So they started to use that term to describe magic. So it's not a new thing to approach God asking these questions. How is it that I manipulate you to get you on my side? And people have been doing that forever. If you read through the book of Leviticus, it's like a B-grade slasher film. There's so many things that are in there that you're like, what is the purpose of this? But actually Leviticus is God's grace to God's people saying that, yes, these sacrifices are required, but this is all that is required. You don't have to live wondering, am I on God's side or not? Have have I made amends for the things that I've done? And in a way, it's a grace for God to say, this is the exact sacrifice that you need to make so that you will be in right relationship with me again. Because people forever have been asking, how do I get in right relationship with the gods? How do I control these forces that seem beyond me? Because when you had a bad crop. Maybe you need to sacrifice more and more so that next year the god or goddess of the harvest would be on your side. And so there are examples of people who have bad crops for years upon years, finally turning to the one thing that the gods perhaps would honor the most, a sacrifice of children. So how do you know if you've appeased the gods? How do you find a way to manipulate the gods so that you will have enough food to feed your family? 
in the book of Genesis, it tells us this very odd and strange story about Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. That verse makes me pause and say, how is that possible? Because if you felt like God told you to do that, you would think, no, 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 that certainly cannot be God. That is not what God is like. But Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey because that's just what the gods and goddesses of that time were like. You want to prove that you are really my servant? That you are willing to do anything? Go and sacrifice a child. So Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. Now, scholars say that one of the reasons for that story, because ultimately, if you're familiar with it, God gives a way out and there is a a sacrificial lamb who comes in right as Abraham is about to kill Isaac and everything turns out okay. But really, this story is something that would have been familiar because this is just what you do to get a god or goddess on your side. One of the things this story is telling us, I think, is our God is is not like this. God will not require children to be sacrificed. But the reason that Abraham gets up and loads his donkey is because people had been trying to manipulate gods and goddesses forever. How do you manipulate the gods and goddesses? And at times we think that that was just a long time ago and it was a really different era and we don't do things like that anymore. We don't think about God in that way. But Taiwan, which is one of the most high-tech countries in the world that manufactures a lot of our computers, they treat religion as some sort of a good luck charm and there are things that they do to try and get the forces of the world on their side. We can end up saying prayers to try and manipulate God and to say, all right, I've prayed, you know, five days in a row, God, where's my treat? There's an author named Lorraine Kisley, and she says that really a lot of times what we're praying is completely the opposite of the Lord's prayer. What we're really saying is master of earth. So recognizing, yeah, God, you are, you're powerful. Exalt my name over all others. Give me a kingdom where my will is never thwarted. Let me take whatever I wish and grant me vengeance over all who oppose me. Let me satisfy my every desire and give me the power to crush anyone who stands in my way. Yeah, that's a little bit harsh. And maybe you haven't exactly used those words and it's like, whoa, that's a little bit too much. And maybe you're better at prayer than that. But how often are we just looking to God to co-sign our ideas? God, here's the things that I need you to do. Let me get you to take care of those. And then, you know, I'll be back in a few days with a few more. But this is what I want to do. These are my thoughts. These are the things that I need. And I need you to just go ahead and take care of that. So my will will be done in the world. We look at some of 
those in the stories around Abraham and Isaac and think of child sacrifice as primitive and the ways that people would try to get gods on their side is strange and old-fashioned. Then we pray for our team to win the Super Bowl. We're still trying to get God on our side. And Jesus, I think, very strongly says, prayer doesn't work like that. And we talked last week about the importance of letting our hearts come before God, you know, really using our requests, using that time to give our hearts. But it's not just about you. It's give us our daily bread. So you think about your needs and whatever is going on in your heart and in your community, those who need prayers. But it's also not just for you that you think about how you can be part of the solution of giving good news and God's bread to all of the world. So there's a part where Jesus gives us in this template for us to pray the things that are on our hearts, the things that we need. But he also says, be careful to not fall into a trap that I think we can often fall into. Right before he teaches us this very simple prayer, he says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray, do not keep babbling on like pagans. That's simply a term for someone who doesn't really actually believe in the one living God. For they think that God will be on their side or that they will be heard by these gods and these forces because of their many words. Jesus is warning us, don't fall into some sort of trap that you think, all right, if I just pray in the right formula or the right kind of way that he's calling me to, and if I get in this right posture and everything is exactly as God would want me to be, and then if I just do it all in these right ways, then I'm going to force God to basically co-sign on what I already want to do. I know for me, I grew up at church, so I grew up at times praying like the people who I saw pray on Sunday mornings, and it was often with words that I never would have used in my regular speech, and I would talk with vows and beseech, and I would say some of these things like in my normal prayer life, thinking that that was how I was supposed to pray. But Jesus says, don't use flowery language or think that you have to just go on and on and on to try and manipulate and get God on your side. In fact, prayer is definitely about bringing our requests to God and in ways changing God. But it's also about us and changing us. Jesus ends this very simple prayer by saying this, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If I was to use a word to describe this last section, I would say it's self-awareness. That it is us saying, God, I need forgiveness. I raise my hand and I admit that I'm broken, that I've hurt people, that I've made mistakes, and that I need your forgiveness, your love, and your mercy. And then I also get a chance to say, and who is it in my world, in my community, among the people that I interact with that I'm withholding forgiveness from? Just as you have been free in forgiving me over and over again, and I remember that, and I dwell on that, may I think about how I can forgive those people who have hurt me. 
It's a moment of self-awareness and reflection. It's a moment when we say, I am not perfect. God, you still need to forgive me. No matter how long I've been a Christian or how long I've been at this faith thing, you still need to forgive me actively. And may I also then be a tool of your forgiveness in the world. Jesus says something right after this prayer that think is something that we need to really deeply consider as we consider our relationship with God. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive you your sins. We need this part of this prayer so that we can continue to do self-assessment and to say, yeah, I need the forgiveness of God. And then as we once again consider that and remember exactly what that means, then we can come to mind some people who have hurt us. If you're in real community with real people, you're going to be hurt at times. People are going to say things to you that are hard to deal with. And at times you need to be fueled by remembering the forgiveness of God so then you can forgive others. It's so important that we do that. I remember growing up uh, at church, there was a day that we had a, a prayer breakfast for the boys who were in the youth group at that time. And we prayed for a little while, but then of course this boys prayer breakfast turned into a huge water fight. And we were throwing water all over the place. It started with pitchers, and it was inside, not the smartest thing to do. We had a youth minister at the time. He wasn't necessarily somebody who I would respect making decisions like that, telling us to stop. So we continued, and it got bigger and bigger until we were pouring trash cans of water onto each other. And it was just boys there. Sorry about this mental image. But there came a point where my clothes were drenched and I was just in my boxers running through the church building trying to get people wet as much as I could with all the water that I could find. And I came screaming around a corner running just wearing my boxers right as a man who was a longtime member of our church was walking in the door. And I remember being terrified. This is not somebody that you want to see in your boxers as there's water all over the church building. His name was Ned Bracken, and he was a nice Christian man, but also was the one who was always telling kids not to skateboard. I wasn't a skateboarder, but he wasn't somebody who was maybe super fond of, of the young people. And as he walked in the door and looked at me with parts of the second floor dripping onto the first floor, I thought, my life is probably over in this moment. And he looked at me and said, Brian, what are you doing? And I said, well, we started out praying, but now we're having a huge water fight. And Ned said, let's go get the mops. And in a moment, I went from thinking I was going to die and maybe be punished forever by my parents to mopping up this huge mess that I made alongside Ned Bracken. That's a moment for me that I always think of when I think of feeling the power of forgiveness. What's one that comes to mind for you when perhaps you were expecting someone to come down hard on you or you were thinking, oh no, if this person finds out this about me, there's no way they're going to look at me the same ever again. And yet you were received with grace, love, and mercy. And perhaps that person even helped you clean up 
your mess. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. And it's something that we all need on a daily basis. And it's something that is then so powerful for us to pray about and say, God, how can I give this away? The love that you have given me is unbelievable. It's really unfathomable. I can't even understand it at times. But then how can I be part of giving it away? I mentioned a guy a few weeks ago who's a psychologist at the University of Illinois. And he's called himself Dr. Happiness because he's done a lot of research on happiness. And he says this about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is the most formative of all virtues. And it's probably the hardest to come by. He says the happiest people are the most forgiving people. And that has been shown in his research over and over and over again, that people who forgive well and easily, the happiest, because they don't carry stuff around with them. That's why Jesus gives us this prayer where we would say, God, I need your love and forgiveness and mercy, and then let me bring to mind who it is that I need to forgive. We need this daily where we can say, all right, you know, that person hurt me in that relationship, but God, I'm going to give that up to you and trust that you are better at handling it than me. Then Jesus continues, and he says, deliver us from evil, and lead us not into temptation. It's a recognition again, a self-awareness that says, I can get myself into trouble if I'm not careful. That the line of good and evil isn't just out there. I think in today's world, perhaps more than ever, we're really good at pointing out whoever's evil and just jumping on those people and really just distancing ourselves and then feeling a little bit of self-righteousness because we're perhaps better than that person. And I'm not saying there are times that we need to call out stuff in the world that is horrible and things that we need to sometimes stand up. I think the things that we've seen over the last few weeks and the treatment of the African-American community in the United States is something that we all need to be horrified by and say something about. But oftentimes that leads us to a sense of self-righteousness where we don't examine our own hearts and think about, okay, well, yeah, maybe I'm not doing some of those things, but how can I be part of a solution? Because I'm tempted to fall into evil as well. I'm tempted to make just one small little bad decision that leads to another small little bad decision that leads to another small little bad decision and I end up so far away from who I intended to be. And the line of good and evil isn't just out there off in the distance. It runs right through me. The book of Genesis, the first family immediately runs into problems because Cain gets jealous about his brother Abel and his sacrifice. He kills him. And God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer throughout scripture is yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are called to care about people who are not just you, and to treat them well, to forgive them well, to not release harm, 
You are capable of doing some of that. We need to recognize that there are times that we've hurt people and we've been involved in evil and we can't just say that it's out there beyond us to say this part of the Lord's Prayer is to admit that we need help, that we need to constantly reorient ourselves around the goodness and love and mercy of God. Jesus says you need to say that you are capable of doing some evil things so that your heart might be cleansed. And it takes consistently going to this place to consistently be self-aware. People who aren't self-aware aren't people that we want to be around for very long. This prayer causes us to think about how we want God's kingdom to come here. And church, that starts with us. It starts with us as individuals turning more and more to God in all moments of life. And prayer isn't just something that you say and then get over with so you can get on to your agenda. And may we never treat it like that. It was June 7th, 1964. A group of men gathered to pray at the local Methodist church as they always did. And they're Leader started this prayer. Oh God, our heavenly guide, as finite creatures of time and as dependent creature of thine, we acknowledge thee as our sovereign Lord. Permit freedom and the joys thereof to forever reign throughout our land. May the sweet cup of brotherly fraternity ever be ours to enjoy and build within us that kindred spirit which will keep us unified and strong. Engender within us that wisdom to wisdom kindred to honorable decisions and the godly work. By the power of thy infinite spirit and the energizing virtue therein, ever keep before us pledges of righteousness. Bless us now in this assembly that we may honor thee in all things. We pray in the name of Christ, our blessed Savior. Amen. It was a beautiful prayer. And as this group said, amen, the Ku Klux Klan started their meeting considering how they might bring white supremacy more to the earth. Don't ever let prayer be you just allowing these words to be something that you then say, okay, God, co-sign our agenda. Always allow prayer to be something that asks God something of us as we ask things of God. Prayer helps us to become more and more the people that God would call us to be. To ask hard questions of ourselves and our own agendas, the evil that we are capable of. May it not just be something that we do for a few minutes just to get it over with, but may it truly cause us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. 
May we give our requests to God, but may we also then have a moment where we recognize our need for forgiveness, our need to recognize the brokenness that is in all of us. I've heard it said before that God will let everyone into heaven who can stand it. There are going to be people who, when you get to heaven, you're going to think, wow, she's here? And there's going to be people who look at you and think, wow, he's here? And we need to start practicing for heaven in our practices like prayer now. Because if you're a racist, you're not going to like heaven, a place where every tribe and tongue is represented. So prayer is a way that we open ourselves up to the work of God's spirit and presence and bring God's kingdom to earth, starting with us. Prayer isn't just about changing God. It's also just as much about changing us. And it isn't just about what God does for you. It's what God then does in you. I saw an article this week after the killing of George Floyd. There was a letter basically penned to white America saying, here are 75 things that you could do to combat racism in your own heart and in your community. And there were some awesome suggestions in that article. But something that wasn't in there, and this was not a religious article, was prayer. I think Jesus would say, that's where this starts. It starts by us praying about the forgiveness that we need then thinking about the forgiveness that we can give to other people, recognizing that the line of good and evil isn't somewhere out there, it is in us, and we are capable of things that we would never start to do in the beginning just because we can go one step out of the way. We need a constant cleansing of our heart and mind. Maybe we recognize that prayer isn't something that we do to like get away from this world, but to engage this world more fully more honestly, and in a more self-aware way. Because prayer isn't just about changing God. It's also about changing you. And may we live and pray like that so we can bring God's kingdom to the world starting with me and starting with you. We're going to sing the song now, Fight My Battles, which has become, I think, one of our congregation's favorites. And may we recognize that the battle in our lives starts with prayer. It isn't something that we do as a last resort. It isn't something that we do to try and manipulate God to get God on our side. Yes, we bring our requests to God, but it is also about us humbling ourselves and saying, God, there are ways that I have screwed this up even today. And I need your forgiveness. I need to show your forgiveness. And I recognize the evil that I can do in the world. Let's make the world the kingdom of God starting with us. And it starts with prayer. Because this, my friends, is how you fight your battles.